Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. In the 1920s, a young perceptual psychologist named Heinrich Kluver used himself as a guinea pig in an ongoing study into visual hallucinations. One day in his lab at the University of Minnesota, he ingested the hallucinogen peyote and documented how his visual field changed. He saw patterns that looked a lot like shapes found in ancient cave drawings. He speculated that maybe the shapes were innate to human vision. Now, researchers are using math to try to explain why those specific images appear during hallucinations. Kluver's experiment with peyote buttons, basically the top of a type of cactus, led him to classify the patterns into four distinct types. He called them form constants. They're lattices, including checkerboards, honeycombs, and triangles, as well as tunnels, spirals, and cobwebs. Fifty years after Kluver's work, Jack Cowan of the University of Chicago set out to reproduce those hallucinatory form constants mathematically. He hoped they could provide clues to the brain's circuitry. Cowan and then-graduate student Bard Ermintrout reported their findings in a key 1979 paper. Cowan says they found that the electrical activity of neurons in the first layer of the visual cortex could be directly translated into the geometric shapes people typically see when under the influence of psychedelics. The math or the way the cortex is wired, it produces only these kinds of patterns. In that sense, what we see when we hallucinate reflects the architecture of the brain's neural network. But no one could figure out exactly how the intrinsic circuitry of the brain's visual cortex generates the patterns of activity that underlie the hallucinations. An emerging hypothesis points to a variation of the mechanism that produces so-called Turing patterns. In a 1952 paper, British mathematician and codebreaker Alan Turing proposed a mathematical mechanism for generating many of the repeating patterns commonly seen in biology. These include the stripes of tigers or zebrafish and leopard spots. Scientists have known for some time that the classic Turing mechanism probably can't occur in a system as noisy and complicated as the brain. Physicist Nigel Goldenfeld of the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign is a collaborator of Cowan's. What Turing showed was that if you have a system that is completely homogeneous, then if you, as you change some control parameter, concentration of something, it will spontaneously start to form stripes or spots or some other thing like this. The thing about the Turing's mechanism, it's very difficult to show that Turing patterns actually occur in nature. In fact, mostly people have tried to find them and failed. But recently, Goldenfeld proposed a twist on the original idea that factors in noise. Experimental evidence reported in two recent papers has bolstered his theory that the so-called stochastic Turing mechanism is behind the geometric form constants people see when they hallucinate. Images we see are essentially the patterns of excited neurons in the visual cortex. Light reflecting off the objects in our field of view enters the eye and focuses on the retina, which is lined with photoreceptor cells. Those cells convert the light into electrochemical signals. 
These signals travel to the brain and stimulate neurons in the visual cortex in patterns that, under normal circumstances, mimic the patterns of light reflecting off objects in your field of view. But sometimes, patterns can arise spontaneously from the random firing of neurons in the cortex or when a psychoactive drug or other influencing factor disrupts normal brain function and boosts the random firing of neurons. This is believed to be what happens when we hallucinate. Peter Thomas at Case Western Reserve University is a collaborator of Cowan's. He says, think of this disruption like noise on a stereo. If you turn up the volume and turn up the volume, but there's nothing coming into your stereo, eventually you hear static, right? You can magnify it so much that even though there's not a record playing, you hear the static and the crackling coming from the amplifier. Something analogous to that can happen in any sensory pathway. But why do we see the particular shapes that Heinrich Kluver so meticulously classified? Cowan, Ermintraut, and their collaborators argue that these patterns arise from the way our visual field is represented in the first area of the visual cortex. It's a widely accepted explanation, but it's not straightforward mapping. Thomas says the visual cortex is the part of the brain that processes our worldview. It's not like a TV screen where, you know, if you could somehow open up someone's head and look at the activity of the nerve cells that you would see a sort of image of the world through a lens. Instead, Thomas says the image undergoes a transformation of coordinates as it's mapped onto the cortex. If activity in the cortex takes the form of alternating stripes of firing and non-firing neurons, you perceive different things depending on the stripe's orientation. You see concentric rings if the stripes are oriented one way. You see rays or funnel shapes emanating from a central point, the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel common in near-death experiences, if the stripes are perpendicular to that. And you see spiral patterns if the stripes have a diagonal orientation. But if geometric visual hallucinations like Kluver's form constants are a direct consequence of neural activity in the visual cortex, the question is, why does this activity happen spontaneously? And in that case, why doesn't it make us hallucinate all the time? The stochastic Turing mechanism potentially addresses both questions. Alan Turing's original paper suggested that patterns like spots result from two chemicals interacting and spreading through a system. They don't diffuse evenly like gas in a room until the density is uniform throughout. Instead, the two chemicals diffuse at different rates, which causes them to form distinct patches with different chemical compositions. One of the chemicals serves as an activator that expresses a unique characteristic, like the pigmentation of a spot or stripe. The other chemical acts as an inhibitor, disrupting the activator's expression. Imagine a field of dry grass dotted with grasshoppers. If you start a fire at several random points with no moisture present, the entire field will burn. But if the heat from the flames causes the fleeing grasshoppers to sweat, and that sweat dampens the grass around them, you'll be left with patchy spots of unburned grass. Mathematical biologist James Murray came up with this analogy. It illustrates the classic Turing mechanism. Turing admitted that this was a simplified model of how actual patterns arise. He never applied it to a real biological problem. 
but it offered a framework to build on. In the case of the brain, Cowan and Ermintrout pointed out in their 1979 paper that neurons can be described as activators or inhibitors. Activator neurons encourage nearby cells to also fire, amplifying electrical signals. Inhibitory neurons shut down their nearest neighbors, dampening signals. The researchers noticed that activator neurons in the visual cortex were mostly connected to nearby activator neurons. Inhibitory neurons tended to connect to inhibitory neurons farther away, forming a wider network. This is similar to the two different chemical diffusion rates required in the classic Turing mechanism. And in theory, it could spontaneously give rise to spots or stripes of active neurons scattered throughout a sea of low neuronal activity. These spots or stripes, depending on their orientation, could be what generates perceptions of lattices, tunnels, spirals, and cobwebs. Cowan recognized that there could be some kind of Turing mechanism at work in the visual cortex, but his model didn't account for noise, the random bursty firing of neurons. Noise seemed likely to interfere with the formation of Turing patterns. Meanwhile, Goldenfeld and other researchers were applying Turing's ideas in ecology as a model for predator-prey dynamics. In that scenario, the prey are activators, seeking to reproduce and increase their numbers. Predators are inhibitors, keeping the prey population in check with their kills. So together, they form Turing-like spatial patterns. Goldenfeld was studying how random fluctuations in predator and prey populations affect these patterns. You know, I was interested in ecology, and then what happened, one of Jack Cowan's students applied to me for a postdoc. And he wrote, you know, a sort of cover letter. And I just read the cover letter and I got halfway through it. And I realized from what his research was that what we had done in ecology would apply to the neuroscience case. So without even finishing the letter, I immediately emailed him and Jack Cowan, who I vaguely knew from pattern formation in the past, and just said, why don't we work on this together? Goldenfeld is a condensed matter physicist by training. He gravitates toward interdisciplinary research, applying concepts and techniques from physics and math to biology and evolutionary ecology. When he received the letter about Cowan's research, he and his then-graduate student Tom Butler were studying how the spatial distribution of predators and prey changes in response to random local fluctuations in their populations. In Turing Pan, there's two agents. There's one that inhibits and one that activates. So think of it in the ecology context. Let's suppose you have some prey, like, say, sheep or something like this, and you have some predators like wolves running around. So what happens is the prey grow. Locally, there's some population increase in, in the sheep. So now a lot of wolves want to come around and, and eat them. And the chewing pattern works like this. If the wolves can run around much faster than the sheep do, then as the sheep you know, tries to grow their population by having more babies, the wolves sort of can move much more quickly and go around the outside and uh, eat them up. And so they basically cause there to be a localized spot because the wolves can move much faster than the sheep can. So that's the basic mechanism for Turing's patterns. If the populations are huge, local fluctuations don't make much of a difference. But Goldenfeld and Butler found that when a herd's population is relatively small, random fluctuations can have big effects, even leading to extinction. 
It became clear that ecological models need to take random fluctuations into account rather than just describe the average behavior of populations. Goldenfeld says once you take these random fluctuations into account to form patterns, you don't need to have these strong constraints on how fast the different predators and prey can move in order to get the Turing patterns. You can get random Turing patterns for a much wider range of parameters. So that means they're much easier to observe. So that's why they can occur in the brain. The fluctuations are not the integers of sheep and wolves, it's the on-off states of, of neurons. Goldenfeld says knowing this, the obvious next step was to apply this to hallucinations. In the brain, the number of neurons that are on or off randomly fluctuates rather than sheep or wolf populations. If an activator neuron randomly switches on, it can cause other nearby neurons to switch on too. And when an inhibitory neuron randomly switches on, it causes nearby neurons to switch off. Because the connections between inhibitory neurons are long-range, any inhibitory signals that randomly arise spread farther and faster than random excitatory signals. That's exactly what's needed for a Turing-like mechanism. Goldenfeld's model suggests that stripes of active and inactive neurons will form in a Turing-like pattern. He dubbed these stochastic Turing patterns. But to function properly, the visual cortex has to be driven primarily by external stimuli, not by its own noisy fluctuations. What keeps stochastic Turing patterns from constantly forming and causing us to constantly hallucinate? Goldenfeld and his colleagues argue that even though the firing of neurons can be random, their connections are not. Goldenfeld says short-range connections between excitatory neurons are common, but... You look at neural networks, and the thing you notice is the sparse long-range inhibition. So you have a modular structure and very little long-range inhibitory connections. Goldenfeld thinks this helps suppress the spread of random neural signals. He and his cohorts tested this hypothesis by creating two separate neural network models. One was based on the actual wiring of the visual cortex. The other was a generic network with random connections. In the generic model, normal visual function was substantially degraded because the random firing of neurons amplified the Turing effect. Goldenfeld says a generically wired visual cortex would be contaminated by hallucinations. But in the realistic model of the cortex, internal noise was effectively dampened. Goldenfeld suggests that evolution has selected for a particular network structure that inhibits hallucinatory patterns. The sparseness of connections between inhibitory neurons prevents inhibitory signals from traveling long distances. This disrupts the stochastic Turing mechanism and prevents the perception of funnels, cobwebs, and spirals. The dominant patterns that spread through the network will be based on external stimuli. That's a good thing for survival, since you want to be able to spot a snake and not be distracted by a pretty spiral shape. Peter Thomas says Goldenfeld's evolutionary argument is an interesting one. If the visual cortex is so good at making these patterns, how come we're not walking around seeing stars and stripes all the time instead of the real world? And so they have an argument that, yeah, if the cortex had been built with these long-range inhibitory connections sort of all over the place, then the tendency to form these patterns would be stronger than 
the tendency to you know do what the cortex normally does, which is processing the visual input that's coming in, and it would be a disaster and we would never have survived. But as it turns out, the long-range connections are very sparse. The inhibition is sort of precisely targeted. And under those circumstances, the models, they don't produce these spontaneous patterns unless you sort of force them to by simulating the effects of hallucinogenic drugs or other ways. Experiments have shown that hallucinogens like LSD appear to disrupt the normal filtering mechanisms the brain uses. This might boost long-range inhibitory connections and therefore allow random signals to amplify in a stochastic Turing effect. Goldenfeld and his collaborators have not yet tested their theory of visual hallucinations experimentally. But in the last few years, hard evidence has emerged that stochastic Turing patterns do arise in biological systems. Around 2010, Goldenfeld heard about the work of Ron Weiss, a synthetic biologist at MIT. Weiss had been struggling for years to find the appropriate theoretical framework to explain some intriguing experimental results. Weiss and his team had grown bacterial biofilms that were genetically engineered to express one of two different signaling molecules. They tagged the signaling molecules with fluorescent markers so that the activators glowed red and the inhibitors glowed green. The experiment started with a homogenous biofilm. But over time, a Turing-like pattern emerged, red polka dots scattered throughout a swath of green. But the red dots were much more haphazardly located than, let's say, leopard spots. Weiss says additional experiments also failed to yield the classic Turing pattern he and his colleagues expected. When Nigel Goldenfeld heard about these experiments, he thought maybe Weiss's data could be viewed from a stochastic point of view. Here's Ron Weiss. Rather than trying to work on making the patterns more regular and less noisy, instead we ended up realizing, you know, with this collaboration with Nigel, that these are really stochastic Turing patterns. So it's a really nice combination of having theory that is able to explain our biological observations. Weiss, Goldenfeld, and their collaborators finally published their paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences last year, some 17 years after the research began. The biofilms probably formed stochastic Turing patterns because gene expression is a noisy process. Joel Stavans of the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel says noise is responsible for disparities among cells. Those cells can have the same genetic information but behave differently. In recently published work, Stavans and his colleagues investigated how noise in gene expression can lead to stochastic Turing patterns in cyanobacteria. We're talking about an organism of very ancient origins. In fact, Stavan says they produce about half of the oxygen on Earth. He and his colleagues studied anabina, a type of cyanobacteria with a simple structure of cells attached to one another in a long train. Stavan says an anabina's cells can specialize to perform one of two activities, photosynthesis or converting nitrogen in the atmosphere into proteins. The problem is that these two activities are incompatible biochemically, and so the organism, what it does is it chooses a number of its cells, and some of them specialize in nitrogen fixation, 
while the others carry out photosynthesis. An anabina might have one nitrogen-fixing cell, then 10 or 15 photosynthesis cells, then another nitrogen-fixing cell, and so on, in what appears to be a stochastic Turing pattern. In this case, the activator is a protein that creates a positive feedback loop to produce more such proteins. At the same time, the protein may also produce other proteins that diffuse to neighboring cells and inhibit the first protein's production. This is the primary feature of a Turing mechanism, an activator and an inhibitor fighting against each other. In Anabina, noise drives the competition. Researchers say stochastic Turing processes appear to be at work in these two biological contexts. This adds plausibility to the theory that the same mechanism occurs in the visual cortex. The findings also demonstrate how noise plays a pivotal role in biological organisms. Weiss says noise is one thing that distinguishes biological systems from engineered ones. You know that there's a direct correlation between how we program computers, how we program computer networks, how we program robots and whatever else that we engineer. Biology really requires different frameworks, different design principles. Weiss says noise is one of them. There's still a lot more to understand about hallucinations. Jean-Paul Sartre experimented with the hallucinogen mescaline in Paris in 1935. He found it distorted his visual perception for weeks. He said houses appeared to have leering faces, all eyes and jaws. Clock faces looked like owls. Sartre saw crabs following him around all the time. These are much higher-level hallucinations than Heinrich Kluver's simple form constants. University of Pittsburgh mathematician Bard Ehrmantraut. The early stages of visual hallucination are very simple, these geometric patterns of things. But Ehrmantraut says with higher cognitive functions, like memory, you start to see more complex hallucinations. In the higher order stuff, we're trying to make sense of like dreams, random patterns, WTF. <laughs> you know, humans are great at making sense of things. Ehrmantraut says he thinks that we're really seeing the spontaneous emergence of stored memories as the higher brain areas become more excited. Back in the 1920s, Kluver also worked with subjects who reported tactile hallucinations, like cobwebs crawling across their skin. Ehrmantraut thinks this is consistent with a cobweb-like form constant mapped into the somatosensory cortex. Similar processes might play out in the auditory cortex, which could account for auditory hallucinations and perhaps even phenomena like tinnitus. Jack Cowan points out that the brain has similar wiring throughout, so if a theory of hallucinations works for vision, it's going to work for all the other senses, too. Michelle Yoon and Natalie Wolchover helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jennifer Ouellette's full article, A Math Theory for Why People Hallucinate, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Brains are fascinating, and you can learn more about how humans evolved supersized brains in Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire. It's a quanta book published by the MIT Press, available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. <laughs>